Mac Power Users, episode 688, Workflows with Adam Tao. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I'm joined by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am good, David. How are you? Excellent. And I'm really looking forward to this show. Welcome to the show, Adam Tao. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, Adam, you've been on my list a long time. We met actually at Sal Segoyan's Apple Script Forum many years ago. I think it was pre-COVID now that I think about it. It was pre-COVID. It feels like a, an eternity ago. Yeah, Adam is, uh, is a longtime Apple enthusiast, and uh, we're going to be talking about that later. But the uh, at at Sal's thing, you stood up and did an automation presentation on how you were getting images out of your your SLR fancy camera into your Mac and doing some great stuff with it. And I was like, oh, we need to become friends. And uh, over the years, we've gotten to know each other. Adam not only does cool automation stuff; he's a developer. He's made several apps for the iOS platforms. Um, he currently does development work for Zoom and uh, and other folks. And uh, just a overall cool guy and Mac nerd. Welcome to the show, man. Great to be here. Before we get started, uh, for more power users today, and that's the version of the show you can get that's ad-free, a little longer, a little extra content. Uh, today on more power users, Adam, we're going to go deep dive on Adam's Apple products history. I feel like this is something that Stephen is going to really enjoy <laughs> and, uh, when we were doing the prep for the show. Uh, you know how, like, when certain topics comes up, Stephen has to, like, hold me down? I feel mm-hmm. like this is one where I'm going to have to hold you down, Stephen. <laughs> I mean, it's not Obsidian, but but here we are. Yeah, I mean, well, now you're the, the Obsidian Pro. I well, understand. Well, we'll talk about that on the next feedback episode, I guess. <clears throat> there we go. <laughs> it didn't last. Let's just say that. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, well, we'll put a pin in that. <laughs> put a pin in that. So, Adam, tell us a little bit. I, I shared a little bit of your background, but tell us more about you. Oh, where should we get started? Um, Been a long time Apple user since the days of the Apple II. And so saw the transition from Apple II to Mac, uh, to Newton, to the dark days of of Apple, to when they started to make their comeback. Um, I've just stayed with Apple this entire time. Never felt the urge to go to what we called the dark side back in the day to to Windows, um, let alone Android today. Yeah. You know, it's funny how we were also wound up about that back then. And um, it, now it seems almost quaint <laughs> with the way society seems so polarized anymore. The old Apple Windows battles seem kind of tame. <laughs> it, definitely. And, and staying with the brand for so long, we're going to get into the history stuff later on. But, you know, you wrote out some some dark days there where it, it really... It wasn't a sure thing that your investment was going to pay off. Uh, definitely not. I mean, I remember, I remember the days of the Performa, uh, and while I never had a Performa, it was like, oh, the Emilio and Spindler days were not not fun for <laughs> mm-hmm. Apple. Yeah, it's funny. They they thought that that making the hardware cheap and generic was going to solve all their problems, and it just dug the hole deeper, didn't it? It did, and I actually, I actually had a power computing power tower pro 
uh, right around when I graduated from from college, and it was great because it it had all the power of like the the most powerful Mac, but like half the cost. Yeah. Well, you um, and your and we'll talk about your apps later, but I mean, in the stuff you develop, you have a real focus on audio and video, and and you got started in this road of development. How did that happen? Well, I've always been hacking on on the Mac. I guess I don't know before the days they called them script kitties. I was always doing things like Apple Script or just tweaking my Mac with quick keys. Yeah. Um, went to college, learned how to program, uh, but at that time, so this would have been the late '90s. I actually started developing stuff for the Apple Newton. So when I graduated, I wanted to make a go at it at being a Newton developer. So kind of the, the, one of the first indie developers for the Newton community. And uh, it was going pretty well. And then 1998, 19, end of 97, 98 rolled around when uh, Apple decided to cancel Newton. <laughs> and I was kind of thrown in for a tailspin. Um, didn't leave Apple. Uh, and like I said, go to the dark side. I did actually work at Palm for a period of time. Uh, but I still kind of stuck with it. Then uh, around the year, like... Uh, late 90s, uh, early 2000s, kind of digital photography came out. I got really involved with that. And of course, using my Mac with uh, products like Aperture, Lightroom, Photoshop to do my image management. Uh, And then kind of the video revolution started coming out uh, with like the 5D Mark II, Um, did a documentary with my wife. uh, And then one thing led to another. And then the pandemic happened. Uh, and then I started getting heavily into kind of like video production that led to the development of some of the software that we might talk about later today. Well, I, I want to go through all of that and how that has resulted in the way you use your Mac. But I think we have to just put, we have to talk about the Newton for a minute here. <laughs> because when you say you love the Newton, you really love the Newton. I did. I got my first Newton in 1993. So this is right around the time I was graduating from high school and right before I went to college. And I, I got the original message pad and I brought it with me. I also had a, a power book and I was living, I was living the life that we're all living today back in 93, uh, taking my Newton to, to classes, trying to write notes on it. Wasn't, wasn't the best, the original message pad. I had it with me in France when I studied abroad my junior year. And I remember sitting on the, on the Metro and at the time, everyone, no one had, you know, personal digital assistants and stuff. Everyone yeah. was reading little pocketbooks on the Metro uh, or yeah. reading the newspaper. And I was, I remember thinking and writing on, on my new and using graffiti. It's like one day everyone's going to be like re- having this like portable device, reading books and doing all sorts of stuff. Um, and it only took, I don't know what, 15 more years <laughs> for that to come true. Yeah. But uh, it's we're here. I, I really feel like the Newton was a visionary product. It just was a little bit too ahead of its time, I guess. Certainly. I mean, and 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 the kind of the history of technology is paved with lots of products that were ahead of their time, but for whatever reason didn't succeed. But from the the ashes of those products comes the stuff that we use today. I wonder, do you guys think that um, anything from the Newton made its way onto the iPhone? Or did they just start from scratch and pretend like it never happened? Oh, there's certainly there's certainly things. I think there's a wasn't there like the puff animation when you delete stuff? Did that come to the to the Mac uh, and iOS? And then obviously there's the Apple Pencil. I mean, I think one of the the head of um, uh, iPhone marketing he used to be a like a product manager or marketing manager at, at Apple during the Newton days. Really, Michael Chow. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and. 
So you actually also, there's a great story about you uh, when Steve Jobs came back. To share that with us and, and your uh, your attempts to keep the Newton afloat. Yeah, so this is in 1997, and Apple had just announced that they were going to roll back Newton Inc., which they were going to spin out as a wholly owned subsidiary back into Apple. And so the whole Newton community was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Is Apple going to kill the Newton? Are they going to like invest more into the Newton? No one, no one knew. And I was in uh, living, I think, in Mountain View or Palo Alto at the time. And I was in on California Avenue. And there was a sushi place that Steve Jobs was known to frequent. It was called Hama's Brown Rice Sushi off of California Avenue. And this was the day after, like I think it was Mac World. And I saw him getting coming out from the place, getting into his car. And I said, great speech. And he's like, thanks. And he gets into his car and drives away. And that night when I got back home, I wrote him an email and I said, you know, I'm really, I met you at Hama's Brown Rice Sushi. And, you know, what are you going to do with the Newton? Are you going to like cancel it? Are you going to reinvest it? Because the Newton is like the future. Um, And he actually wrote me back an email that night, uh, a rather lengthy email by Steve Jobs standards. Usually he had, uh, this emails that you've seen online are just like a brief one sentence reply. But he actually wrote a paragraph, a couple paragraphs saying that, you know, we're really excited about the email and we want to like roll it back in and reinvest uh, into the product. And he was less clear about the message pad, but then the end asked me, uh, he wrote, said, what do you think? And then I wrote back a long response about why the Newton's great, to which he never responded. Yeah. And then a few months later... <laughs> Yeah, and then a few months later in February, they announced that they're going to cancel the Newton, discontinue the Newton. And then, uh, you know, that that was that. I I was kind of bummed, as were many people in the Newton community. And that's what prompted me to kind of organize the Newton protest, which was, which was held in March of 1998. Yeah, this is really wild to me because I've read all about this, this time period, right? People being... Uh, at the campus trying to to get Apple's attention. And so it's it's kind of mind-blowing to me to talk to somebody who was involved in that. And it, it is such an interesting time, right? Because this is, I mean, the internet's around at this point, but it's definitely not the way it was today. You know, today this may take the form of a bunch of angry tweets or blog posts or something, but y'all showed up and made your presence known and ultimately didn't change anything. But I, I guarantee you people at that campus where we're talking about it. Definitely. Uh, I read an article that said uh, Tim Cook was reflecting on his 10 years at Apple or 10 years of leading Apple after Steve Jobs' death. And he actually wrote that his first day at Apple was the day of the Newton protest. So to get <laughs> into you know, the Infinite Loop campus, he had to go through the, the picket line, so to speak. That's amazing. I, I don't think people were protesting outside of Compaq, his, his previous company. Definitely not. And he remarked how it's like this, wow, this is such a passionate group of people who love this product. Uh, yeah. and it's 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 true. People love Apple products even when they <laughs> when they get canceled. There is so much passion. And and it sounds like people are cranky, but it's just because they want it to be so good. And they, you know, I mean, we talk about it on the show all the time, and and I feel like we fall right into that that demographic. So you're one of us, Adam. And I love the story of you. Uh, and there's a we're going to share a link in the uh, in the show notes of Adam, a younger Adam, in a very nice suit outside of Cupertino. There, trying to convince Steve and gang to, to keep the Newton. 
But but ultimately, you were proven correct with the iPhone and the way it transformed the company. Yeah, and and the way I think about it is like for Apple to have succeeded, Newton had to die. Uh, and even though the the product is is you know relegated to the dustbin of history, you know there's still people using it. I can still fire up my Newton today, you know, 25 years later, and it still works because it has flash memory. You just need new batteries, uh, and it's it's like a perfect little time capsule of what life was like, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years ago. Do you ever find yourself pulling it out and like doing actual work on it now? My, my kid sometimes uses it as his alarm clock, uh, and sometimes <laughs> I use it to take notes. The handwriting recognition still works for me. Yeah, I had that old Tandy WP2, which was just a little typewriter with an eight-line LCD screen on it that got me through law school. And when my kids were little, I pulled it out. It was the same thing. It was flash memory. If you put a couple AA batteries in it, it worked again. And they loved it. They, As kids, they played with it you know, as a toy, and they would type on it. And they loved that you could see the word show up on the screen. I found it. A year or two ago, and it finally gave up the ghost and made me sad. Yeah, there's something to be said about products that aren't connected to the internet that just work. Yeah, it is. Um, it was. It was a moment in time. I, I and I do feel like, and this is probably a topic for another day. But I was talking about this in the Max Market Labs the other day. I feel like we're on the verge of another big transformation in technology with the rise of artificial intelligence and. Um, things you strap on your face and all this other stuff going on. I feel like hardware and software are about to to just turn upside down again. No, I definitely think you're right. Uh, and you know, if I had more time, I'd be spending a lot of time kind of learning all these things. Yeah, but but then you know, when the Newton did give up the ghost, you moved on, like you said, to audio, photography, video, and you've built a, a successful career around making tools for that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't stand still in this uh, industry. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Go to onepasswordcom MPU right now and get signed up for a personal or family plan with 20% off. Both Stephen and I have been 1Password subscribers for years, and there's a good reason for it. There's a bunch of people on the internet trying to get your secure information, trying to break into your accounts. They want to get your stuff, and they want to get your information. And you need someone at your back, and that is 1Password. 1Password is a team of people dedicated to protecting you from the bad guys. So the way it works is once you sign up, you get the 1Password application that helps you with respect to your security in multiple ways. The first thing it does is it helps you generate strong and unique passwords for each website or service that you use. So you never use the same one in two places. It really can be a problem when you use the same password in more than one place because if the bad guys hack your password on one website, then they can use that same password to hack you on another site. In fact, in the uh, bad guy circles, they pass around these files with all these passwords in it. And that's something 1Password does is it checks that database against you and makes sure that you don't use any passwords that are in that database. It also keeps track of the services you use to let you know if they've been hacked. That's right. Even if you have great password habits, if the company you sign up with an account for gets hacked, your password still gets out into the wild. Well, 1Password calls that their watchtower service, and they keep track of that for you. When you log into 1Password, it tells you if any of the vendors that you work with have been hacked or compromised. 1Password does a great job of eliminating all of the friction points 
with having a secure presence on the internet. It autofills your usernames and passwords, and more specific than that, it only offers to do so on the appropriate websites. So if you get phished and some email link takes you to a site that looks just like your banking website, but it isn't, 1Password won't autofill for you, so you'll know that you've got a problem. It also lets you securely share items with anyone. It's on Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, Android, and your web browser, so you can use it from virtually anywhere. They've got 256-bit encryption. And most important, your websites and logins are never sent to 1Password or anyone else, so you still are protected. I've been really happy with 1Password as my personal vendor for this. I've got a family plan, so I've got the rest of my family, my wife and kids, in it. We can share stuff between each other, and I can help teach them good password habits. Gang, you can't manage this yourself anymore. The bad guys are getting too smart. You really want something like 1Password helping protect you on the internet. Go check it out, onepasswordcom MPU. Once again, that's onepasswordcom MPU. You'll get that 20% off and start protecting yourself today. And thank you, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the gear that you're currently using. Uh, let's start with the Mac. What, what do you have on your desk? Today I'm using an M1 Mac Mini with a terabyte of storage and a 16 gigs of RAM. Uh, I also have an Apple Pro Display XDR that I use in my primary monitor. I also have this uh, 1080p monitor. It's like a secondary monitor to the right. Okay. What drew you to the Mac Mini? I've always been a desktop or laptop person, and I alternated uh, depending on what was faster at the time. So before I got the Mac Mini, I was using, uh, I think it was a 2015 MacBook Pro. I never got the butterfly keyboard MacBook Pros, thankfully. Um, And then when the M1s came out, I'm not sure it was, I don't recall if there was an M1 MacBook at the time, but I decided to just go with the Mac Mini to see... uh, see what the mini life was like, because I'd never used one before. And uh, I actually quite like them. I actually have, let's see, one, two, three, four of them in my house now. <laughs> they, they sort of multiply, don't they? They do. They're all different generations. So I have two M1s, and then I have like a 2012 and then a 2014 that are, act as, as servers or like a boot camp computer. I'm kind of surprised you're running a boot camp computer, Adam. I figured you were a purist. What are you doing on Windows? Uh, it's a boot camp to play this old game <laughs> that doesn't right. work on uh, Windows. <laughs> and sometimes I just have it uh, running on the Mac, and I can use it as like um, an extra monitor for my video switcher. Yeah. I think a lot of people overlook the uh, overlook the Mac Mini, right? It's the entry-level desktop and... Especially now with the Mac Studio, you know you can still have some small form factor Mac that has a lot of power. Uh, do you find the M1 to be uh, enough for what you what you need it to do? For what I'm doing today, yes. So Xcode still builds pretty quickly for my projects. Um, I don't do too much like hardcore video uh, or photography anymore. Uh, like I- editing iPhone videos is fine, or just editing 1080p videos is is fine on the M1. Um, I do find that the lack of ports to be somewhat limiting. So I have this OWC Thunderbolt kind of hub, which gives me, what, three more uh, Thunderbolt 3 ports. Uh, so something like the M2 Mac Mini would be would be interesting to, to look at since it has more. Uh, 
uh, or I'll just wait to see what Apple comes out with with the, the new Mac Pro. Or I might go back to the laptops. So the M2 MacBook Pros are, are fantastic. Uh, they're so fast and so light compared to um, kind of like the, the previous generation, which had limited ports or had a, that, that terrible keyboard. You know, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people are scratching their head about the Mac Pro. You know, hopefully we'll get the word on what that is. But if you believe the current rumors, it's not going to be a lot more than what the Mac Studio was, but hopefully have support for external devices, um, which I think will disappoint some folks. But at the same time, the stuff you can buy off the shelf right now is so powerful. It's just there. I feel like Apple is slowly whittling down the number of people that need more to such a small number that it's going to impact the ultimate device. I mean, how much time and money are they going to put into a device that, you know, maybe you have a thousand customers for? That's true. And I think there was an article about how sales were dropped last quarter because the products that they have are so good that no one needs, has the, no one feels like they need to upgrade, right? Yeah, I, I really believe, I've been saying this since the beginning with the Apple Silicon, but I think Macs are going to enter a new golden age of reliability. Because, uh, and the example for that to me is the iPad. If you look at the iPad, people are still got, in fact, Adam uh, has a generation one iPad working in his office. He showed us that before we started recording. Um, you know, you have these very old iPads that still run fine. I mean, sometimes the, you know, the software exceeds them. But the hardware itself just keeps going and going. And the new Macs are very similar to the iPads with some different chips in them. And I just think these things are going to run for a long time. They'll run for a long time until Apple new operating systems drop support for them. And then yeah. people have to make the decision whether they need to, to mm-hmm. upgrade or stick, stick with it. Yeah, I think we were even seeing that towards the end of the Intel era, right? You have people running iMacs that are out of not only out of Apple Care, but maybe even marked a vintage, and then they still get macOS updates for a couple of years, and then ultimately uh, they they hit that wall where the OS is not going to support it anymore. I, I am curious to see how that that shakes out in the Apple Silicon era. You know, right now we're this transition; they're going to drop Intel machines pretty quickly. I think, I think faster than maybe some people wanted, but once. You know, we're four or five years down the road. I, I'm just, I'm curious how they, how they will do that because now they control all of it, right? So it's some of the reasonings I think they had, you know, uh, to to drop Intel machines over the years. It's it's just a different ball game now, and I'm I'm just very curious to see how that will play out. But I think y'all are right. I think most people can run a Mac until they hit the OS cutoff, and that's that. It's not been true forever. Well, it'll be interesting how to see how this all plays out. But I do think that that's going to become a story that people don't upgrade. I can tell you myself personally, like I am the poster child of suckers for people who buy new Apple hardware when I really don't need it. But over the years, I can't help myself. Uh, Steven, uh, I will say you are guilty of this too. Yes. <laughs> That's your friend. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have this M1 MacBook Pro sitting on my desk, and it, the thought has not even crossed my mind after I've owned it now, what, 16, 18 months of like, oh, when's the next one coming? I I just can't imagine. This thing does everything I want. 
faster than I need it to do. I mean, I don't know when I will feel like I need to update this computer, but it's not going to be anytime soon. And that's a new thing for me. That's a new experience because <laughs> I always wanted the new one. And now I don't really feel that compelled. Maybe I'm just getting old and cheap, but I think it's actually the Apple Silicon is, is just so great that I just can't imagine needing more. Adam, do you do much peripheral stuff? I mean, like when you think of Mac Pro customers, you know, that's what I always define them by people who are attaching particular cards or, or, um, or hardware to their Mac that they need to do their job. But you're kind of in that area. Like I know you're very involved with the, with the ATIM from Black Magic, but what do you, what, where do you stand on the future of a Mac Pro? Is that something you have any interest in? I'm always interested in what they what they come out with. I my last Mac Pro was the 2008 Mac Pro, uh, and I actually put in a couple PCIe card slots in them for like USB three, uh, a new graphics card, and it lasted me many many years. I think for me, like I would, I'm interested more in what they're going to come out with rather than I'm going to go buy this for myself. Because a lot of the the peripherals that you can get right now, you can plug in, you know, using Thunderbolt, and it's it's fine for me. Um, I think if you're like a graphics professional or someone who's doing really high end stuff, the the idea of an expandable Mac Pro might be something that they they need and require. Now, whether or not Apple's going to give them that, that's uh, that's another question that we can't answer at least for a few more months. Yeah. And uh, how about the iPhone? Where where are you there? <laughs> uh, where have I been and where am I now? So, I mean, I was one of the original people who had the the first iPhones. Um, I've gone through many, many generations. Usually I skip uh, two generations. Um, I think this last time I skipped three generations. So the last iPhone that I had before my iPhone uh, 14 Pro Max was the iPhone 11 Pro. And I'm curious about the iPhone 15, but I don't know if I'm going to upgrade this year, I might want to wait for the 16. Yeah, there, there's rumors that it's going to have that periscope lens, and I imagine that would be super tempting for a guy like you that's into photography. Yeah, the uh, I'm, I'll probably be tempted. We'll see in September. <laughs> yeah, but you're a developer, so you also have a probably a whole flock of them floating around oh, anyway. Way, way too many. And on the topic of of kind of like iOS uh, and OS kind of when they drop support. I have like on my desk, like several devices, which are stuck on iOS 15 and I don't know what to do with them. Uh, I guess I should recycle them, but you know, they still have some value, some use. So maybe I should just keep them around for compatibility testing. And you've got the original um, iPad, you know, just in case. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the original iPad is more of a propped one, a prop when I'm doing YouTube videos or if I'm doing uh, zoom meetings or streams. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a nice iPad. What, 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 what is the iPad you're using under fire at this point? Uh, right now, my main iPad is the M1 iPad Pro, but I also have a, let's see, the sixth generation iPad mini and a 2018 iPad Pro. So I got the, the M1 right after WWC last year because they introduced Stage Manager. And I was like, oh, I'm all gung ho to like uh, port my app so it could use Stage Manager. And Honestly, I don't see that much of a difference between that and the 2018 iPad Pro. They both seem to be very fast and very capable. Yeah. 
It's, you know, that's kind of the problem we were talking about earlier. They're really good and they last a long time now. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I also, I bought the 2015, the 12.9 inch iPad Pro, the first one with the Apple Pencil. Yeah. And that's, it's rumored it's on the cutting block for iOS, uh, was it iOS 15 um, to not be supported. And that's, that's eight years for that device to get uh, software updates, which is, which is a really long time for iPads. What do you use the iPads for? Mainly for development. So my app runs really well. This is my app for controlling Blackmagic ATEM switchers, Mix Effect. Um, it runs really well on iPads, and I use it on that. Um, I use the iPad when we're watching uh, movies late at night. Um, the screen on the M1 is actually quite much better than the 2018. I'll give it that. Um, and it's it's a really great device. It's one of my favorite devices I think that Apple's ever made. The iPad Pro, and it, and it seems like you're a fan of the the twelve point nine. What draws you to that over the eleven? I think it's the screen and the size of the keyboard. Yeah, because I I feel like the the eleven. If you have the mini and you have the twelve point nine, you don't really need to get the one in the middle. Mm-hmm. So if you want like super portability, take the mini with you. If you want like the big expansive screen, take the big one. What do you guys think about the iPad mini? Is it going to continue to get support? I think they're on a several year kind of upgrade cycle. Um, and that's, that's uh, historically that's shown to be true. You know, there's a long time delay between the, the fifth generation and then the now sixth generation. And I think there was some time between the fourth and the fifth. So Apple's probably going to skip maybe another year, and then come out with the iPad mini 7th generation uh, next year. Yeah, yeah, they take their time, and then it usually gets most of the newest stuff, right? Like it got the new design, but it doesn't have an an M processor in it. It's got the A-series in it, like the regular iPad. But I I think there is a devoted fan base for it, and I think with the Pencil support now, it does kind of lend itself to this like little digital sketch pad you can take with you everywhere, right? Like you said, you can choose between the big one and the little one. A lot of people like something that's sort of book or notebook sized. And the mini, the mini's great for that. It's, you know, not the nicest screen. It's not the the fastest iPad out there. But if that is uh, what you want, you know, really nothing else scratches that itch, right? Like if you just want sort of a generic iPad, you know, there's several you can choose from, but I feel like people who want the mini know they want the mini. And I'd imagine there's enough of them out there for Apple to to keep it going. Right. I feel like um, bo- both of you as um, enthusiasts of the Newton, it's interesting to me that you both have really attached yourselves to the iPad mini. Yeah. I've, I feel like it is in some ways a spiritual successor. You know, it's right in that ballpark. Especially with the pencil now. Yeah, it definitely is. I'm actually looking at my iPad mini running Einstein, which is the Newton emulator. Um, so you can actually emulate the the Newton on an iPad mini. And it looks it looks pretty good and runs pretty well. Also, I like that Adam, as a guest on the Mac Power Users, has given us his Hackett number. Hackett number 6.3. Okay, for Mac Power Users listeners who may not be aware of the Hackett number, can you explain that, Stephen? Yeah, so that number takes into consideration the number of uh, old computers in your collection and it divides it by the uh, the number of people in your household. 
And so you end up with uh with the number 6.3 is pretty good. Extended is 15. I think extended includes iPhones and iPads. But needless to say, Adam and I have a, a similar <laughs> a similar desire to keep old tech around. Yeah, that, that hacking number would have been a much larger, but over the years I've I've recycled or eBayed uh, a variety of Macs. Adam, I see that you bought an Apple Watch Ultra. What do you think of it? I love it. Um, I love it primarily for the larger screen. Uh, since I am getting older and my aging eyes make it hard to see that's really tiny Apple Watch screen um, from the fourth generation or the, even the original one. Uh, and the battery life has been uh, fantastic. I feel like, um, you know, anytime you say this on a podcast, the contrarians will let you know. But uh, everyone I've met that bought that Apple Watch Ultra has been happy with it. I I am I love mine. Uh, I think Steven likes his. Yeah. Uh, I just was at the post office the other day, and the guy picking my package was wearing one, and he he loves it, you know, because the same thing, battery life, and it's easier to read. Maybe it's the choice of 50-year-olds. I don't know, but the um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty nice watch. It is. I, I'm eagerly awaiting the next version of watchOS to see if we can add more um, capabilities to things like the action button. Yeah. I mean, there's a rumor we'll get an action button on some iPhone. Wouldn't that be awesome? I would like that. Mm-hmm. But the uh, what are you currently doing with your action button, Adam? So the action button for me launches a shortcut, which displays a menu of frequently used things that I want to do. So for instance, um, I do a lot of long runs. Yeah. So I push the action button and then I have a start workout button. And then usually when I run, it's like really early in the morning. So I have the second action in the menu be a flashlight. So... I just push one button and I get to choose what I wanted to do. And that's a choose from menu based shortcut where you just pick which one you want, probably. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a good use for it. Uh, what do you do for your watch face? I am lately. I am just on a tear trying to find a watch face that I will accept, and I can't seem to get happy about that. Yeah, I have a wide variety of modular watch faces to choose from. Uh, I find that's the most uh, information-rich and easy to read. I find that, that was what's that called? The Pathfinder, the Wayfinder watch face to be just too cluttered and hard to hard, hard to, to read. read. Again, with yeah. my with my aging eyes, <laughs> I have to take off yeah. my glasses to see what's happening. Um, so modular modular watch face with um, it could be things like the shortcuts app, uh, calendar, timer, and stopwatch, and generally activity are the things that I usually have on uh, as my complications. Yeah, I, I've kind of got to the same conclusion where I've just given up and just been using the modular, but I have like six of them and then I tie them to focus mode. So like if I'm doing one kind of thing, different tools show up on my watch. And if I do it, then I do a different thing based on focus mode. Yeah, actually, that's a question for the two of you. Do you have your focus mode synced between all your devices, or do you have them working independently? They sync for me. I don't know. What do you do, Steven? Yeah, I've just got a couple, but I I sync them. I find it sort of disruptive if like my computer's in my recording focus mode, my phone, which is right here on the desk, isn't. Um, on occasion, I feel like that comes back to, to bite me. Like maybe I'm working late and, you know, my bedtime focus the sleep focus comes on and I don't want my computer to do that, but it's easy enough to turn it off. But uh, yeah, syncing for me. Okay. I turn my syncing off 
because I like to have independent focus modes for my devices. And since I have so many devices on my desk, I don't want them all to be in one particular focus mode. Hmm. That would drive me nuts. But looking at the amount of devices you have, Adam, it, I can kind of understand. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of stuff there. Um, and we're going to get to that, I guess, later in the show. But Adam has a lot of devices uh, on his desk. Uh, we're going to share a picture of his desk that's kind of awesome. You've got, um, of course, the uh, the Blackmagic ATIM workstation because you've, you've made an app to control that. But you've also got a full-size keyboard underneath your monitor kind of playing the role of a stream deck. That's right. Um, I'm a big fan of mechanical keyboards. So I have been collecting them for several years. I remember I used to have the, the Apple extended keyboard too, um, what they call the battleship. Uh, and that was a great keyboard. I don't know where it went in my house. I probably recycled it stupidly. So, um, I even had the Apple adjustable keyboard, the one that kind of like it could rotate and split, uh, with the chiclet keys. That was terrible. And then for many years, I just stuck with the, the stock keyboards on the laptops, uh, or the Apple, you know, whatever their aluminum keyboard was at the time. I did get like a Logitech wireless keyboard and then their solar powered ones. But then only re- really recently, within the past couple of years, I got back into mechanical keyboards. And I just remember what it was like to type on um, like a real keyboard with switches. And I've just been on a, on a tear just buying a bunch of them. Um, they're great. What do you do with that keyboard? So he, so he has one keyboard where he has his uh, his name Tao in lit keys and everything else is a black key it looks amazing but what do you do with that keyboard that is a prop so similar okay. to my original <laughs> iPad or my 2008 Mac Pro it's just a, a background ornament when I'm doing my live streams or uh, when I'm on like a zoom meeting but you've also got one on a stand underneath your pro display and is that is that the same one or is that a different keyboard? That's the underneath the pro display. That's the the one that says Tau. That's yeah. just the ornament. Um, okay. And I just right. put it there for for the for the office photo. Um, and then there's the Stream Deck, which is below the monitor stand. That's for you know, yeah, uh, doing automations and macros. And then the the wireless keyboard, the Keychron Q1 Pro, which is my current daily driver. Well, see, I, I thought that you had that one actually active as like driving scripts or automations. And I was I was going to be very impressed if you said, well, if I press the top of the T, then, you know, my computer <laughs> does something. I could do that. Um, that particular keyboard is the Keychron K6, which does, you can't configure macros for that. Yeah. Um, but I could easily get uh, one of my other keyboards and, you know, make it do macros with like Keyboard Maestro or, or whatever. That would be kind of awesome. If that you would did be that. awesome. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> You've given me some ideas. <laughs> this episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. Breathe some life into your own backyard with fastgrowingtrees.com this spring. From shade trees to fresh fruit, privacy, and natural beauty, let fastgrowingtrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between. A lot of us want nice greenery around our homes, but it can be hard to know which plants do best. 
We don't have to worry about that because you get customized recommendations based on your specific needs. And their plant experts are always available to help you keep your plants growing healthy through the season and beyond. So no more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants around. You can just order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. One of my favorite things about the website is that you can plug in where you are in the world, what kind of conditions you're in, and it does make those recommendations. My wife and I ordered a couple of plants from Fast Growing Trees, and they showed up in just a few days. They were perfect, and uh, we're really enjoying them. It's really a neat way to do this. Fast Growing Trees has a 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, so you know everything will look great. Join over 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers by going to fastgrowingtrees.com MPU. You'll get 15% off your entire order. Again, that's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash MPU. Our thanks to Fast Growing Trees for the support of the show and Relay FM. Okay, so Adam, when we first met, you were sharing some really cool photo automation. Can you bring us up to date with what you're doing with your fancy cameras and automation? Yeah, so when we met at Sal's automation conference, I demoed this uh, wireless photo workflow that I had with my Canon 5D Mark IV. So some of the higher-end DSLRs or mirrorless cameras have the ability to send photos via FTP or secure FTP, FTPS. And the Canon 5D Mark IV can do that. You don't need any extra kind of like uh, sleds or attachments to it. It's all built in. And so what I developed was um, I set up uh, using one of my Mac minis at my home, uh, an FTPS server. So it's uh, FTP over TLS SSL. And you install like the certificate on your on the camera, and then you have a secure connection. So anytime I would take a photo, and I would only upload the small JPEGs because of due to size, the 5D Mark IV shoots like I don't know, 30 megapixel images. Uh, the small JPEG would be transferred. Uh, over to my Mac mini. And then I had a bunch of scripts that copied that photo uh, onto Dropbox, Google Photos, which was free at the time to upload uh, any number of photos. And then I had an Apple script that also imported it into my photos library and also sent me a an iMessage. So within 30 seconds of taking the picture, I'd had my photo, the JPEG, backed up, renamed according to the name that I would import the raw files later. Uh, on my iMessage and in my photo library. Um, so I had all the benefits of shooting with a DSLR, but uh, with the ability to like, you know, manipulate and transfer the images on my iPhone. And so even today, there's the, some of the higher end cameras still have FTP uh, capabilities. So if you have something like a Sony A7R 3 or any of the kind of the higher end Canon cameras, I would definitely encourage you to to check out the FTP capability and roll your own uh, solution. I have a, a link to my wireless photo workflow that you can uh, drop in for the viewers. Yeah, and we, there's a lot of people that listen to Mac Power users that are are all in with you know big boy and big girl cameras, and there's a lot of good reasons for it. I mean, just recently, I I replaced my uh, my webcam with a with an actual camera, with an actual sensor. And I, I just forgot how good those are, right? You know, sometimes you, you lose track of it because you've got the iPhone in your pocket and it takes really good pictures. But then you see a camera with a proper sensor 
that gets proper bokeh and you're like, wow, yeah, those still are really a lot better than the iPhone. <laughs> Definitely. And my, my Canon 5D Mark IV is used as my, my webcam today. So I'm taking far less photos today and uh, far more of kind of video conferencing. How do you, how do you switch it? Like that's, that is a thing for people. It's like, do you want it? If you use it as a webcam, does that make it too difficult to switch back and forth? What's your setup? Switch back and forth between a regular camera? Well, taking your 5D and putting it in webcam mode, but then turning it back to being a camera to uh, walk around and take pictures. It's almost permanently as a, as a webcam today. So yeah. Uh, in preparation for for this podcast, I actually pulled it out and tried to get the kind of the wireless photo workflow working again, uh, just to make sure that it still works in in 2023, and uh, it does. But then I just put it right back onto my tripod and am using it as my webcam again. Well, uh, we've been teasing your app Mix Effect for a while, but I'd like to talk about that for a minute because that is definitely an automation tool. Uh, for people who are listening, Blackmagic makes this device. It's really kind of great. It's super affordable for what it does, where it's a switcher. And they've got varieties of these, you know, ranging from like a four-channel to, I think, is it 16? I don't know what the biggest one is. But they, they, they get quite big and quite powerful. But it's a switching device that anybody can get. It's something that used to be, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in a television studio. And now you can put one on your desk for as low as 300 bucks and it's a physical switch. So you can change uh, video inputs and I'm probably not doing it justice. Adam can help me out here, but, but what Adam did was write an application that gives you software triggers and tools to control that automatically from your Mac. And it's a very popular app. A lot of people are using it in production and, and just tell us about how you're using that for your automation and, kind of the story behind it. Yeah. So the story behind Mix Effect was the basically the COVID pandemic happened in 2000. And uh, everyone basically were, were switched to, you know, online conferencing, um, in-person events switched to online. And at the time I was working at Vox Media and helping to produce uh, the conferences such as Code Conference, the conference that Walt Mossberg and Kara Swisher were, were hosting yeah. for many, many years. And we switched uh, everything entirely to online. And so I was, I got very interested in how people were producing kind of like hybrid online events. Uh, and while we at Vox Media were using kind of like uh, cloud-based tools, I wanted to get my hands dirty on kind of like uh, how like YouTube streamers were doing it with hardware-based switchers like the ATEM. So I bought one. I bought an ATEM Mini Pro uh, sometime in 2000. And it was great. I was able to plug in my Canon 5D Mark IV, uh, other HDMI, you know, output devices like my computer, and was able to switch stuff. And it was fantastic. But I quickly realized that on the physical hardware device, there's only so many buttons, and they have a lot of buttons, but they don't have all the buttons that you need to kind of control the the hardware. You have to use their software. So Blackmagic has free software for Mac and PC that lets you control all the features of the switcher. Um, but I wanted to do more. And I said, well, why can't I write uh, an app that did that added this one particular button? And so that was kind of the start of Mix Effect. I wanted a button that would turn on the downstream keys, basically an overlay on top of the video that I was outputting. And I, I looked around. There were some solutions out there, but they, they didn't quite jive with me. 
And so I started uh, hacking and then I found um, uh, a library that implemented the underlying protocol. It's an undocumented protocol, but everyone's, all third parties are using it uh, to control the ATEM. And I wrote my kind of like my sample app. I said, oh, this is kind of neat. What if I added this and added this? And soon uh, the app kind of scope snowballed to where I was basically recreating the ATEM software control app that existed on the Mac and PC for iOS, iPadOS, and eventually uh, Macs running Apple Silicon. And it's really taken off. I mean, I was so happy to see the success you had with this app. Oh, definitely. Um, one of the things about MixEffect that uh, a lot of people like is that I've added, I basically can control the ATEM to do things that the software that it comes with can't do. So for instance, on the larger model ATEMs, there's a feature called SuperSource, which allows you to uh, display up to four camera sources at a time. And in ATEM software control, it's somewhat clunky. You can like, you select the box and then you can like move it using these little buttons uh, or sliders around the screen. But what I was able to do was I created this preset layout system where you could define your layout of how you wanted the boxes to look. You can arrange them using drag and drop and stuff. And then you could, with a single tap, you can tap and then the boxes would animate into position. So it would know where the position of the boxes were. It would know which layout you wanted to go to and it would animate very smoothly to that new position. And that uh, proved to be a, a very big hit for the for the software. It's a very popular feature. Yeah, it's really nice. And if you're someone that's giving a lot of talks online, and you know, frankly, there's a lot of us doing that these days, even as we've got a bit past COVID, it's still a thing. And uh, you get one of these ATIM minis or just one of these ATIM products along with Atom Software and it's kind of remarkable what you can do. Like in addition to like feeding your computer, anything with an HDMI can go into it as an input. So like if you do a lot with your iPad, um, like I have a friend who does a lot of speeches at his Mac user group and uh, he uses one with an iPad and an iPhone and a Mac connected it and he can basically create his own virtual switcher while he's talking. And while there are some ways to do that with plugging directly in, none of them are as easy or as smooth as going through an ATIM. And it does a nice fade effect and you just literally push a button and it puts that on the screen. But it also ties right into like Zoom calls and other things where you give presentations. Definitely. And there's this other feature that's actually probably of interest to like podcasters. So I have this feature called Video Follows Audio where it can analyze the audio inputs coming in. And if a particular microphone were to in, to surpass a particular uh, decibel level, it would yeah. basically do a switch of the camera. And if the audio levels kind of went down, the master audio went down below a level, it might switch to a different camera. So you could have like two people, two cameras, uh, or maybe three cameras, one on each person, and then you could just have it basically auto switch. So if someone's talking, switch to camera A. The other person talking, switch to camera B. No one's talking, switch to the wide shot. Uh, and there's uh, several people who do you know, like YouTube streams who've been using this feature uh, to basically automate their their switching. So less time in front of the computer in Final Cut doing the final edit uh, and more time just producing content. Yeah, so if you just switch between different computers, so whatever mic is hot gets you the video feed for that. That's right. Nice. I wasn't even aware you had added that. It wasn't in the original release, but uh, over the past two years, I've been uh, comprehensively and enhancing the product to where it is today. Um, and there's also a lot of automation 
with MixFX. So I have complete support with shortcuts and there's a, a protocol in the kind of AV production space called OSC, which MixFX uses. And that's how you can control the app using a product like the Stream Deck. All right, so let's go back to automation on that. As a developer writing support for shortcuts, uh, how's Apple doing on that? You know, How easy or hard are they making it? And, and how happy are you with the process of adding shortcut support to your app? So I was using Workflow um, when before Apple bought the Workflow team and brought it into Shortcuts. And I have a soft spot in my heart for <laughs> Shortcuts on iOS 13. I thought it was really fast, uh, easy to develop um, quickly. Um, and then with each successive iOS, it seemed to get harder and harder to make super complicated shortcuts as a shortcut developer. And so I remember I had written a bunch of uh, kind of like really 2,000 action-long shortcuts for iOS 13 um, to do things like automation or like folders. And each kind of version of iOS kind of made it easier to make simple shortcuts, but harder to make super complicated shortcuts. And that's kind of why I switched to writing native apps that had shortcut support. And I felt that uh, with each successive iOS version, they've made making shortcuts much easier. So um, the previous way using the Siri kit intents, uh, you have this interface in Xcode, lots of menus and things, but now they have their app intent framework where you just do everything in code. And even though it's more typing for you, you get more power. Um, so for definitely for shortcut developers, it's been much better. Um, but for shortcut users, I think if you're if you're making again simple shortcuts, it's fine. But if you're making really complicated ones, uh, it can be very frustrating. I think that's where Apple's aiming. Honestly, I don't think that's a mistake. You know, I think they they want more people using shortcuts to a lesser extent than a few people using it to a large extent. Hmm. If that makes sense, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if um, making it easier to make three-step shortcuts means it's harder to make, you know, hundred-step shortcuts, I think that's a that's a price they'll pay. I'm not sure if it's right or not. I mean, I understand from a power user perspective, it sucks, but um, I think their real goal is to get people uh, who are not power users to get it going. My my sister-in-law was over at the house the other day and. She told me, hey, my shortcut broke. And I'm like, what? You have a shortcut? And she did. She had a shortcut to tell her um, she got some RSS feed and figured out when her favorite baseball player had a good day. And she made a shortcut for that. And I was so shocked. But I think that's what they're aiming for. Yeah, and I think if 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 Apple's going to do anything with artificial intelligence and like GPT, you can see a future where you don't even have to open the shortcut editor and drag and drop things. You just talk to you know, Siri 2.0 and say, you know, make me an automation or make me a shortcut that does this when mm-hmm. this happens. I just, on the topic of artificial intelligence, I just did a video for the labs and um, uh, my test for short, for these AI engines that say they can program is asking them to make an Apple script because I'm convinced Apple script is the hardest language for a computer to learn how to program. And they, they routinely fail at it. <laughs> I would agree. All that syntax, you gotta get that wording just right. It's a it's a verbose environment. Yeah, I, it's kind of funny to me, you know, that the computers can't figure it out. One area that I, I think people uh, rightly have complaints about shortcuts and a lot of Apple technology, honestly, is documentation. Right? Apple has new technology, framework, whatever, and they don't always back it up with uh, 
with helpful documents for you to work your way through it. When I was looking through the Mix Effect website in preparation of this episode, I came across the documentation for the app, and it seems extremely well done, well documented, well organized. Uh, and Adam, I was, I was wondering how you uh, approach this when you are looking to add a feature to your app or change a feature. How does that uh, relationship look between sort of the development work and then the work of documenting it for your users? Right. This is a great question. So I, I love to write documentation. And as I'm coding it, I'm thinking in my head how to explain it to the user. So before I release the product to, to the world, I update the documentation. I do I update all the screenshots. I might do a video. Uh, and I definitely document any kind of the API shortcut actions or OSC actions that I've, I've added. So for me, development always uh, has the user in mind. And I make sure that I, I, I document uh, everything, every step of the way. I'd imagine in an app like Mix Effect, you may have people who use it each and every day, but you also may have users that, you know, maybe they're a volunteer AV person at a school or a church or something, and they're, they're not in it every day. They, they don't know it super well. Who do you sort of visualize as as your user when you're putting together these features in this documentation? Oh, that's a good one. Um, there is a broad range of users that use the app from people who are uh, very experienced with kind of like AV stuff and people who are less experienced. And I have found that uh, it's it's hard to meet them in the, <laughs> at the same, like there's no middle ground that you can get. So for instance, um, one of the things that you need to learn quickly when using MixFX is like the topic of networking because you have this ATEM switcher, which is on the network. You need to know its IP address. And uh, there could be any number of ways where MixEffect, you know, the, the app on the iPad can't connect to the ATEM. You might be on, the ATEM might be on Ethernet and then the ATEM is on wireless and maybe the two networks aren't talking. Um, there is a, a toggle that appears when you first use MixEffect that's like, do you want to allow MixEffect to connect to devices on your local network? And if you accidentally hit cancel and not like okay or accept, you won't be able to connect to, to the device. So I have to field a lot of these kind of support requests. And so when I, I try to, when I create, create my documentation, I try to boil things down to step-by-step -step instructions to do this, do this. And then I have like one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, if you're running into this problem, do this one, two, three, four, five, six. Uh, and I might make it in text. I might make it in video. I think the app could do, uh, uh, I could probably put like, add another feature to the app, which kind of guides the user through these things. Although that would take a lot more time than just writing out the documentation and pointing them to that or making a video. Yeah, I, th I think that all, that all makes sense to me. Right. I mean, anytime you're, you're building a tool like this that, uh, extends or, um, sort of shows multiple facets of a product, right? You, you run into those edge cases. And to, to loop it back to Apple and shortcuts, I don't think they're doing a good job at that. I think it's easy to kind of get sort of wrapped around the axle with shortcuts. If, again, if you're just a basic user starting out, and uh, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, shortcuts team, take a look at the mix effect support documentation. Take some lessons here. If only Apple were to... Take my advice. <laughs> we can talk about we can talk about my mail app um, and that long saga and how that's going to end out or how I hope it ends out. 
This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com slash MPU, make your next move. Enter offer code MPU at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, your products, services, even the content you create, and Squarespace has got you covered. The lesson that we all keep learning on the internet is that we need to control our own presence on the internet. Every time you attach your thing to somebody else's wagon, then you're stuck going whatever direction they want to drive their wagon, and that sucks. I've always believed in that, and that's why I've been a Squarespace customer so long. They make it so easy to set up a new website. And over the years, Squarespace just continues to add features and support, giving you very powerful tools at a very low cost. With Squarespace, you get a built-in online store. Whether you sell physical or digital products, they have the tools you need to start selling online. SEO has always been a mystery to me, but Squarespace does that now too. You can use their suite of integrated features and useful guides to help maximize the prominence among search results. All of this you get with just setting up your Squarespace website. If you want to do email campaigns, they do that too. You can encourage your visitors to sign up as email subscribers and start them on the journey of becoming loyal customers, all from your Squarespace website. All the good stuff I've made on the internet started with me setting up a Squarespace website. That includes Max Sparky, my law practice, and my wife and kids also have Squarespace websites that they set up. It's just so easy. Over the years, I've been able to turn friends onto it when they want to set up their own website, and they're always super thankful because they want to control their presence, and anybody can run a Squarespace website once you get them set up. It's just not that difficult. So you're getting power plus tools plus low cost. You really can't go wrong. Uh, You should control your presence on the internet, and you should do that at Squarespace. So head over to squarespace.com slash MPU for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use that offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the show. We really appreciate that. And our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So you mentioned before the break uh, your mail app. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and its current state. Right. So I have an app uh, for Mac OS called Message Filer. So this is for people who love to file their messages. They don't just push the archive button in, in Gmail. They like their files, their, their folder structure in mail. And what MessageFiler does is you hit a hotkey and then you type in a few characters of the mailbox and it has this smart search and you hit return and then the message is instantly filed. Uh, it uses the kind of the, the now deprecated mail plugin architecture, the undocumented <laughs> and unsupported mail plugin architecture. And this app has been around for many, many years. Um, I got it onto the Mac App Store, but it requires the use of a mail plugin to kind of work with the the app on the on the app store and there's also a standalone plugin and with apple's announcement that they're kind of deprecating it in favor of their mail kit framework mail plugin developers are all wondering like is this the year that apple's going to like cut off support for mail plugins um and if they do you know will mail kit uh, be able to kind of pick up the slack and to date the answer is no mail kit is is woefully uh, underpowered. Um, I think at the last WWC, they didn't even have any updates to, to MailKit. So it's been two years since they introduced it. 
and seems like no development on MailKit um, and no word from Apple uh, naturally on whether or not they're going to ax mail plugins. So every year, WWC time, June, we're always wondering, you know, what's going to happen. And part of me is like, you know, Apple, just Sherlock my app, please. Just put the put the functionality of message file into the core mail app so that mail power users don't have to, you know, do this plugin thing every year. Um, and they'll get all the benefits of message file, but it'll be integrated into into the app. Yeah, you know, it, it is an interesting question because Apple Mail was stagnant for so long. And my understanding is they were spending a lot of time working on the render engine for mail, which is not trivial and security. Like their big fear was that that would be a vector for someone compromising your Macintosh. Mail plugins are, they basically run in the mail process. So you can do anything that mail does. So mail plugins are definitely very, I guess, insecure by nature. I mean, Apple's put in a variety of kind of like checks to make sure that mail plugins can work uh, nicely. They have this manage plugins thing that you have to like activate uh, in order to even see the plugins. And then every time, not every time, but frequently whenever they release uh, an OS update, they increment or change the kind of the plugin uh, compatibility ID. So mail, develop, mail plugin developers have to update their, their apps to support the new UUID. Yeah, I had heard at one point that they had viewed mail as one of the biggest risks in the operating system. Like as they were t- bolting down everything else, they looked at mail as like, oh, we still got that mail problem. And that's why they they redid it a few years ago. And but they but they've left your app running. And I think you make a really good point. I mean, if you're going to shut that door eventually, so you can't have these plugins because you view it as a security problem, well then you need to give us a way either you need to add features to the app or you need to give us a way to safely do so. Or maybe you just don't care and Apple Mail's just gonna always be a little weak, you know. I, I'm I'm not sure where where they're going with it. We'll find out in a couple months. I was encouraged last year because they did add several features for the first time to Apple Mail, and um, it makes Apple Mail a lot better. But still, I find myself when I use Apple Mail using things like I actually don't use Message File because I don't I don't file messages that way. But you know, I do use some of these other third party services and I do use, you know, Sanebox and some of these other services to try and add features to Apple Mail. And I feel like they made progress, but they still have a ways to go to make this a competitive app. Yeah. MailKit framework, if they extend it, it could be, you know, like Safari extensions, right? Yeah. But uh, the, the current implementation or the, the current feature set of MailKit is still a little underdeveloped. Yeah, definitely. And like, I feel like they have it in them to make a system that lets third-party developers safely add features. In fact, they kind of do, but like you said, it's just not very powerful at this point. And and I've heard from a lot of uh, male um, plug-in developers because I t- talk about it so much and, and write about it so much, and a lot of them are have given up. And I guess that raises another question as a developer. When do you decide that an app is just not going to, going to be worth keeping together. I mean, Apple may force your hand on this one, but I know you've had several projects that you've, you know, stepped aside from over time. Definitely. So I'll talk about message father first and then talk about the, the other apps that I had for iOS that I ultimately shelved. So for message filer, I do the bare minimum to support the app for each successive Mac OS release. So I make it 
compatible. It works um, because I use it. I use it on a daily basis. I want to make sure that it works. But if if Apple were to uh, kind of drop plugin support, there's really not much I can do. Um, that's why I've been encouraging customers to email Apple and say, you know, build this functionality into the core mail client or extend MailKit so that uh, developers like myself can can kind of port our apps over to, you know, the future of, of mail plugins. Um, but there are other apps that, you know, Apple does something and it basically uh, sure locks or makes it uh, very difficult to compete. Uh, so I had two apps on iOS. So the first one was Launch Cuts, which brought folders to shortcuts in iOS 13. Yeah. If you might recall, shortcuts uh, didn't have any folder support for storing your shortcuts. It was all in one big, one big pile in your library. And then iOS 14, they added uh, folders. Um, so kind of launch cuts had a, a nice seven month window before they introduced folders. Uh, and then as time went on, you know there are changes in kind of how shortcuts uh, handled. It's like the internal structure of a shortcut and stuff. And it it basically broke. Uh, how launch cuts worked in the iOS 14.5, 15 timeframe. And at that point, I was like saying, you know, it's it's worse to keep the app on the app store in this kind of broken or half working state than it is to just pull it from the app store. Um, and it had a good run. It, it showed people kind of what uh, shortcuts could be like if you had folders and offered some kind of unique things like tagging to make you organize your shortcuts a little better that even today in iOS um, in the current iOS that they, they don't have. And then the other app was MFC deck, which were widgets powered by shortcuts. And I introduced this product or I announced it right before iOS 14, which is when they introduced the home screen widgets. And I felt like when they did that, it's kind of some of the thunder of, uh, of MFC deck was kind of muted when that happened and the app didn't sell, um, that well. And then the changes in iOS, Again, in iOS, the 14.5, 15 timeframe made it difficult to kind of actually run the app. So I made the decision to also just to, to drop support for it and, and to move on. And it's sad. You see, you work so hard on a product, um, but at some point you have to make the decision, you know, do I keep banging my head to try to get this to work? Or um, is there another opportunity out there that I can, you know, apply my talents to and my, and my efforts to? Yeah, I mean, when you're a single developer shop, Every yes, you know, has a cost to it that of other opportunities that you can't pursue. That's that's you've got to really kind of be brutal, I would imagine. That's right, and and I, you know, my experience with the Newton being canceled means shows me that you know you can't just uh, you got to be nimble. You got to be able to move with the times and not be so stuck to the past. Um, otherwise, you're just going to become irrelevant, a, a dinosaur, and you're going to be, you can become the Newton itself. You know? Yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, I remember the launch cuts saga. Federico covered it and spoke very highly about it on Mac Stories. I think a bunch of us checked it out. And honestly, shortcuts folder support, I still don't think is as good as what launch cut launch cuts gave us. You know, I'm one of those people where sometimes I go into shortcuts and like they've all jumped out of their folders, and I. I don't know why. And I put them all back and, you know, tell them to stay. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I really respect a developer who who makes that decision and doesn't keep something on the store just because they can, right? The app store is littered with carcasses of apps that don't really work anymore. And occasionally Apple will go through and make a sweep or, you know, it'll, it'll kind of go away on its own. But uh, I definitely remember following along with all of this and 
you know, really thinking highly of that decision because you don't want something on the store that people stumble into thinking it can solve a problem for them when it, it doesn't work anymore. And like you said, you don't want to spend time, you know, banging your head against something that's just not gonna not gonna go anywhere. So I'm sure those decisions were difficult when the time came, but I think it's important to talk about, you know, what does the end of a project look like? Because ultimately nothing lasts forever. And if you go into something thinking that it will, you're just going to be in for some hurt later on. Definitely. I mean, even with my my app Mixed Effect, you know, there's always the chance that Blackmagic Design is going to release an, an iOS or iPad version of ATEM Software Control. And they'll probably make it free like they do with their, their current app for Mac and PC. Or even um, they have a version of DaVinci Resolve, which is kind of like a Final Cut competitor uh, for the iPad. And what will happen then? You know, will is will they offer basically the same features that ATEM Software Control has, which not uh, it's less than what my app does, but because it's free, will everyone just use that one? So I'm certainly mindful of the fact that nothing lasts forever in the software world. Although I do think there is like a market for the kinds of things you do, where you pick a problem and you go and solve it with a high degree of, um, of of quality. Like, you know, we were talking earlier about launch cuts, the, the folder support and the way you supported colors and the things you were doing, Apple has never done in shortcuts and I suspect never will do. You know, you offered something that was better in a lot of ways. And I understand it got Sherlocked by the way Apple and shortcuts developed, but for, there's always a market out there for people who want something that's a little better. And I feel like Mix Effect is a perfect example of that. If ATIM makes software, I just don't think it's ever going to do the kinds of things you're doing. Like this uh, feature that's going to check the audio of the microphone and sh- audio switch the video based on the you know the audio level. I'm just not sure a manufacturer ever goes that far down the rabbit hole. Definitely. And they they their development cycles are much longer than an indie developer who can pump out a feature within like a few weeks or a month yeah. uh, versus software development cycles for larger companies. It's, it's measured in, in months or years. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things that's so painful about Twitter clients going away, right? Tweetbot and Twitterific brought innovation to that space that Twitter itself either never did or eventually kind of did it halfway because they have those longer those longer cycles, they have more red tape. Whereas a developer, an indie developer can wake up on a Monday with a great idea and spend their week working on it and customers can be using it like not that far into the future. And there's still some magic about that, I think, when it comes to the app store and indie development, you know, where people like you, people like our friend uh, David Smith or any of the thousands of other indie developers out there can be nimble and respond to things. And that's always going to be valuable, I think, in software development. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Adam, how do you decide when you say yes about a project? I mean, I know you always have a lot of ideas. And like, when do you figure out a project that you want to pursue? I think it boils down to time. So with uh, Mix Effect, um, this is kind of like the the current kind of indie software projects that I'm working on. And, and it's very easy for me to say, you know, oh, I have a new feature I want to add to it. Um, first, I have to think about, can I do it? And then how long is it going to take me to do it? If I were to start a brand new project, 
I'd have to think very long and hard on how, um, how much effort it would take because, you know, uh, my time is limited and I don't want to waste my time kind of like banging my head on a project for like six months and it doesn't do very well. So I'm, I'm, I'm of the mind that if I can kind of execute on a project rather quickly within a few months, um, iterate quickly over it and validate the idea, that's kind of what will drive my decision to, if I want to launch something, something new. So I like, I really like the example that like Jordy Brune has done where he, he has this uh, this method where if I can't get it done in like I don't know a week, then I'm not going to work on it. You know, um, I think that's a a good way to to kind of structure kind of new product development ideas. Although I'm not as fast of a developer as he is, so <laughs> one week for me, one week for him might be like two months for me. <laughs> yeah, but but still, it's interesting to me how much the same ideas and principles are coming out of people like you and David Smith and Jordy and all these people who actually are finding a way to make a living as an indie developer. And it is this idea of being nimble, like getting something out there and then, you know, finding the ones that resonate with an audience and then drilling down on those. And it seems like you did the exact same thing. And, uh, and I'm very happy for you. And you know, the other thing, um, every time we have a guest on the show, that's a friend of mine, it's always interesting because I always learn things about them as we're prepping for the show. And I had no idea that Adam is also a documentary producer and filmmaker. <laughs> Adam, tell us, so let's just switch gears for a second. T- tell us a little bit about Autumn Jim. Sure. So Autumn Jim is a documentary on modern China's first feminist. So she was a real historical figure from the turn of the last century, uh, Cho Jin. And think of her like a Chinese Joan of Arc. So my wife had this idea to make a documentary film to kind of expose the story of Cho Jing to a Western audience. She's very well known in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and China, but that story is not well known in kind of the Western world. We interviewed people like her, some of her living relatives, and also professors uh, about her life and did recreations from her life and made this kind of like almost hour-long documentary that we toured around the world around 2008 to 2012. And it, it was a great experience. We were able to travel, um, meet, meet a lot of different people, see a lot of different places, and share this story with, uh, uh, with the world. And there's an Apple angle to it too, because you did all of that off an iPad. We did. So the iPad came out in 2010, and we were in Boston at the time, and the day it, it, it was released, I was like at an Apple store in Boston. I got the iPad. This is the original iPad that's still, you know, in, in the background of my Zoom videos and streams. And, uh, you know, it had the, the dock, the 30 pin dock connector. And I think we got at some point, I don't know if it was immediately, but we were able to get that uh, VGA adapter for it. And so we we're able to plug in when we we're doing our presentations the keynote presentation or show the, the full video, uh, the full documentary, just using the iPad altogether. So we didn't have to bring to lug around the MacBook Pro or have like CDs and stuff or DVDs uh, to play at, at our screenings. Either way, you can learn more about it at autumn-gym.com. And like, I, I had no idea of this person. And uh, now I think I'm going to have to go watch this documentary. Adam, we love to finish up our our guest interviews with some favorites, some services or apps that that you rely on that maybe we haven't gotten a chance to mention yet. What's on your list? 
I've always been big into automation since the early days of the Mac. So there's an app called Quick Keys, which you may may recall. Um, it was like one of the first kind of macro making apps on the Mac. Uh, and so today, apps like Shortcuts, Better Touch Tool, Keyboard Maestro, Alfred, um, those are the things that I use to kind of automate my day-to-day workflow. Um, 1Password for password management, although Apple's kind of keychain access or password system is, has gotten a lot better, but I find 1Password's family plan where you can share kind of vaults with other people to be really good. I, have, I will say that I have not upgraded to 1Password 8. I'm still on 1Password 7 and, and still quite happy with it. Yeah, I think the family sharing is definitely a, a, a blow against Apple's uh, product. You know, they've got 2FA, they got a lot of the other stuff there. I think the other thing that hurts Apple's product, though, is that it's stuck in settings. That it, and yeah, you know, I know I know people who work on it at Apple, and they're very quick to share a shortcut. So you can put it on your dock or your home screen or whatever. But it being locked away makes it feel somehow less full featured than it is. And I wish that it would it would graduate to a full blown app. I think a lot a lot more people would would come across it that way. Yeah. Well. Again, WWC is just around the corner, so maybe <laughs> macOS 14 uh, will have kind of add another level to the kind of the iCloud family plan mm-hmm. and allow for password sharing. Adam, as somebody who's into automation and a developer, if you had one thing you could whisper in Tim's ear for WWDC, what would it be? Allow third-party apps to run shortcuts without launching the shortcuts app on iOS and iPadOS um, and allow allow third-party apps to expose automations. So uh, trigger events that then can run shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, make, make the automation smoother. I, I agree. That's a good one. You also mentioned uh, Apple Frames by our friend Federico Vitici. I think that is one of the best shortcuts for shortcuts. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Oh, definitely. So all the screenshots that I have in my documentation for Mix Effect uses the Apple Frame shortcut. I modified it slightly um, to kind of suit my needs because usually I take a screenshot and I want to see uh, the last maybe like 20 screenshots. So I actually reverse the sort order um, in his shortcut. But it's it's fantastic for for making those screenshots with your um, with your device frame around the screenshot. It's amazing how much more professional a screenshot looks when it's stuck inside an iPhone frame as opposed to just sort of floating on a page. And uh, I noticed we were talking about your documentation a few minutes ago that uh, you you have a lot of those types of images. Are you using Apple frames to generate those? I am. So there's, there's images that are just like a shot of like the iPad alone. And then maybe there's a shot of like three iPhone size images, uh, one after the other, so um, like a three-column one. And I use, uh, I use Apple Frames to generate those. Well, Adam, thank you so much for giving us your time today and all the great stuff you've been doing for the community with your software and your automation projects. And uh, I can't wait till the next time you come back and tell us what that keyboard now does for you. I'm sure the capital T will have some automation attached to it, knowing you. I do have some ideas about keyboards, yes. Next yes. time. I, I I can't wait to see what happens, man. It's like the homebrew stream deck, right? Where you have a keyboard that just makes magic happen when you start pressing buttons. Um, 
I actually had a listener once write in that they were doing that with a, a keyboard, like a musical keyboard, because, you know, um, keyboard maestro can have a trigger on a MIDI event. So literally like hitting an A sharp really hard would make his Mac do something. And I always thought that was kind of amazing, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm going to leave it to you, Adam. I feel like you can, you can take that to the next level. Adam, where should people go to learn about the stuff you make and the things you do? So I would go to a variety of places. So I'm not, I don't post too often on Twitter, but I'm A-T-O-W, A-T-O-W at Twitter. You can find my YouTube videos for Mix Effect and other things at YouTube um, slash Adam Tao. Uh, I have my personal website is Tao.com. Uh, Three-letter domain name, very hard to get. I got it back in 1995 when domains were free to to register. Hmm. Um, and I just started a, a Mastodon at also at mastodon.social at ATAL. Although, again, I'm not publishing that much. I probably should. Yeah, and you can go to mixeffect.app to learn about that mixeffect app we talked about during the show. Um, so go check it out, gang. We are the Mac Power users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. If you want to get into the forums, check it out at talk.macpowerusers.com. And thanks to our sponsors. That's our friends over at 1Password, Fast Growing Trees, and Squarespace. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>